Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast a whistle-stop tour of the best bits from across The Economist. I'm Sarah Maslin, and coming up... Imran Khan, star cricketer-turned-politician, diagnoses the problem with Pakistan. Why herds of water buffalo now graze in rural Ireland. And the Chinese Buddhist shrines that are floating on the stock market. But let's start with the most proverbially valuable thing that any one of us has, our health. The world has actually never been in better shape. The number of children who die before they reach five has halved since 2000. Life expectancy continues to rise. Malaria, TB, and HIV are all in retreat. The problem is that healthcare inequality has gone critical. At least half the world is without access to what the World Health Organization deems essential, including antenatal care, insecticide-treated bed nets, screening for cervical cancer, and vaccinations against diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough. Safe, basic surgery is out of reach for five billion people. Our cover leader argued that for the first time, universal basic health care is no longer a fever dream. In some quarters, the very idea leads to a dangerous elevation of the blood pressure because it suggests paternalism, coercion, or worse. There is no hiding that public health insurance schemes require the rich to subsidise the poor, the young to subsidise the old, and the healthy to underwrite the sick. But bad health care is a far more serious social malady. The sick struggle to get an education or to be productive at work. Land cannot be developed if it is full of disease-carrying parasites. According to several studies, confidence about health makes people more likely to set up their own businesses. Some brave countries have already taken their medicine on this issue, and they prove that it's affordable, too. Chile and Costa Rica spend about an eighth of what America does per person on health and have similar life expectancies. Thailand spends $220 per person a year on health and yet has outcomes nearly as good as in the OECD. Its rate of deaths related to pregnancy, for example, is just over half that of African-American mothers. We argued that it's time healthcare stopped being an exclusive privilege. The better option is to cover as many people as possible, even if the services available are sparse, as under Mexico's Seguro Popular scheme. So long as half the world goes without essential treatment, the fruits of centuries of medical science will be wasted. If you want to learn more about how a little money could go a long way to saving millions and improving billions of lives, I prescribe a copy of this week's Economist. And if your curiosity is chronic, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And if further proof were needed of the topsy-turvy state of global health care, listen to this. Last week, Britain welcomed a new royal baby. He arrived in style. The private Lindo wing of St Mary's Hospital in London, where the as-yet-unnamed prince made his entrance, offers luxurious suites, afternoon tea 
and a comprehensive wine list for celebrating parents. But with a little digging, our data team found that the delivery of a prince actually costs less than the birth of your average Joe across the pond. In 2015, the Lindo Wing charged £5,670, that's $8,900, for 24 hours in a deluxe room and a natural delivery. A survey in the same year by the International Federation of Health Plans found that the average fee for such a delivery in America was $10,808. A king's ransom. This year, The Economist is celebrating its 175th birthday in style. We've launched Open Future, a special season exploring ideas of free speech, free markets, and open societies in print and online. On Thursday, Imran Khan, the former star cricketer now vying to lead Pakistan in July's elections, joined the debate. Pakistan's most popular television channel, GOTV, has been outspoken in its criticism of the army. For the last month, its broadcasts have been mysteriously disrupted. We asked Imran Khan whether the army should be policing the airwaves. You should not look upon Pakistani society from British eyes because you have an involved democracy here. I mean, it would be unthinkable in Britain, for instance, for one of your media groups defending someone who's been disqualified by Supreme Court with tons of evidence of siphoning of money, which should go to your uh, helping poverty in your country and foreign banks. You would not have a media house being paid money to defend them. That in itself is a crime. You have a plurality of views. I mean, that's the idea, isn't it? There is a big difference between different views. And there's a big difference when you're paid billions and billions of rupees to actually protect a certain criminal. Imran Khan also addressed the social media storm that arose in Pakistan over pictures of his new wife, Bushra Maneka, at their wedding, fully veiled. The amount of uh, clothes uh, a human being wants to wear how much they want to wear or how little they want to wear is a personal choice. So my wife, she's always been a recluse. She's a Sufi. She is not a social type. I don't care what anyone says. It's none of their business. But how do you respond to the full face veil? I feel that that's her choice. What I find shocking is when people force their views on other people. And you can hear the rest of that interview and join the debate by going to economist.com slash open future. The latest episode of Babbage, our science and technology podcast, encountered a unique and uniquely demanding way of life. The Bajo people of Indonesia are extraordinarily accomplished free divers. They spend 60% of their working day underwater fishing, and they've been doing so for about a thousand years. Melissa Elardo of the University of Copenhagen joined us to explain how over the centuries, the Bajo's genetic code has adapted to help them. So there's something called the human dive response. And the way this works is that when you hold your breath and immerse yourself in water, first your heart rate slows down. Then you have constriction of the blood vessels in your extremities. And you also have contraction of the spleen. And what this is doing is your spleen is holding oxygenated red blood cells. And so as it contracts, it pushes them into your system and gives you this extra oxygen boost. And it seems that the genetic variant that we see in the Bajo causes thyroid hormone levels to be higher, which in turn causes an increase in spleen size. So when they have this larger spleen, they're getting even more of an oxygen boost that allows them to dive for even longer. Adaptation for survival was also in evidence in Money Talks, our finance and economics podcast. The island of Ireland makes a lot of cheese, most of it cheddar. The problem is that most of it is currently bought by Britain. So with Brexit looming, Irish cheesemakers are branching out. 
Edam, Jarlsberg, and mozzarella are all on the table, the reason herds of water buffalo are wandering the hills of Cork. But as Tom Wainwright, our Britain editor, found, the grass isn't always greener. One of the uh, features of the Irish dairy industry is that the milk supply is very, very seasonal because the cows there feed on grass, and so they produce loads of milk in the spring and summer, hardly any in the winter. And cheddar is a good cheese to make because you can leave cheddar for a couple of years if you want to. Fresh cheeses, though, like mozzarella, uh, it's harder to do that. If you want to make a really good mozzarella, you can't leave it hanging around for a year. Another thing they've come across is a a problem with coloration. And Irish butter makers always proudly talk about how the grass uh, gives Irish butter this nice kind of golden colour. But with mozzarella, that's not really what people want. So some people have found out that it comes out a slightly yucky kind of yellow colour, which might not be all that appetising. There's also the branding challenge of how to market Irish mozzarella. But as a piece in the pages of this week's business section showed, it's just a question of finding your niche. China's Buddhist shrines seem to have had no trouble attracting financial support. Beneath a lustrous 33-metre bronze statue of Guan Yin, the Buddhist bodhisattva of mercy, a young monk on Mount Putuo tallies the cash donated by visiting faithful. Daily, anywhere between tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of yuan, he says. 100,000 yuan is a little under $16,000. But the Regional Tourism Board has bigger ideas. Since 2012, it has mulled an initial public offering, or IPO, of these services on Shanghai Stock Exchange. Monks are rattled. The one man in Guan Yin's donation box fears such undisguised money-making would turn their shrine into another Shaolin. That temple in Henan province is run by an abbot known as the CEO Monk. It hasn't always been the monks versus the markets. China's earliest pawn shops were run by Buddhist monasteries, who also leased land to farmers. After the end of the Cultural Revolution, monks whose land had been expropriated cooperated with local authorities and businesses keen to attract visitors, paving roads to their temples and opening shops hawking spiritual tat. Even the country's holy mountains are taking off. The first afloat of China's four sacred hills, known by Buddhists as the Pure Lands, was Mount Amei in Sichuan province in 1997, when its local tourism company went public on the Shenzhen Stock Exchange under the providential ticker number 000888. It has since opened a cluster of fancy hotels on the mountain, and its revenue has grown 12-fold to 1 billion yuan last year. Well, that's one sort of enlightenment. And finally, even if you don't regularly worship at the altar of the mixing decks, you may have heard of the untimely death of Avicii. Our obituary paid tribute to the superstar DJ, whose real name was Tim Bergling. Once he started the music, flinging up his right arm while his left hand worked the decks to bring it flooding, then crashing in, the crowd in the hall could not resist. Caught up with him, they would shudder, pulse, sway, dance, then go completely apeshit, wildly happy, his mostly millennial worshippers left the world behind. On days or nights like those, who could ask for more? He could earn $250,000 a night, and in 2014, Forbes estimated his earnings at $28 million. Stars like Madonna and Coldplay lined up to work with him. Yet learning to DJ confidently in public took 18 months, and his stage name was the Buddhist term for lowest hell, as if he recoiled from the start. The whiplash speed of his journey took its toll. His diet became Bloody Marys at the airport, wine on the plane, Dom Perignon during the shows. 
In 2016, after severe pancreatitis and the removal of his gallbladder and appendix, he gave up performing live. He had too little left for the life of a real person, he wrote in an online letter to his fans, but the hints were already there in the lyrics for Wake Me Up, which he had played at Earl's Court in 2014 in a whirl of eight layers of lasers and a diamond-shaped screen that reflected light as fractals. I tried carrying the weight of the world, but I only have two hands. What's the music that can carry you away? Tell us at radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And remember, you can listen to all our podcasts in full by subscribing to Economist Radio on your podcast app. While you're in there, if you like what you hear, give us a rating. It means the world. Now, it's all over for this week's tasting menu. I'm Sarah Maslin. In London, this is The Economist.